for nearly two millenniums now, Christians have, uh, not just Christians, people have been celebrating the nativity, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Today we call it uh, Christmas Day. But historically, it's been a celebration that was much longer than one day. Definitely in the church. It's at least a four-week celebration for the weeks prior to Christmas. And it's called the Advent season. Advent is a is a word meaning uh, arrival or coming. And so celebrating the advent of Christ is celebrating the arrival of Christ. And it's really supposed to be a party and a celebration that lasts not one day, but for an entire month that is leading up to Christmas. And so you see there's different, there's different calendar. Historically, the church has recognized different points on the calendar during a year. Uh, we've been pretty good at, at least if you come from backgrounds like I come from, you know, we do a pretty good job at Easter. Uh, you know, we, we talk about Good Friday and we talk about the, the week before and then we, we have Easter Sunday. We make a really big deal of that. Um, and Christmas has sort of gotten uh, hijacked, I guess, sort of gotten hijacked with the whole Happy Holidays thing. And so we've got Christmas Day on the 25th, but really it's good for us to long for Christmas Day for about a month before that day gets here. And in actually doing that, what we're doing is we're sort of rehearsing what God's people did for uh, centuries before the coming of Christ. They were longing. They were longing for the Messiah to come into human history. They were longing for the rescuer to come into human history. And he finally did at the nativity at the birth of Jesus Christ. And so we sort of rehearse that if for a month. We just continually read the Christmas story and we, we talk about the birth of Christ and we talk about what this means and we, we sing songs to him and we worship him and we do that for a while. And then Christmas Day is sort of the, the culmination. So as a church, we're celebrating Advent. We've also got that resource we've told you about. Um, it's available out there in the library. The King has come. An Advent devotional that we put together so you can celebrate Advent in your home, celebrate Advent in your family. And then obviously your celebration is going to culminate on Christmas Day. As a church, we're not coming together on Christmas Day. But as Pastor Curtis said at 630 on Christmas Eve, you're all invited. Your friends are invited. Um, we're all going to come together. And, and as a church, our Advent celebration is going to culminate on, on Christmas Eve as we finally look to the, to the birth of Christ. Uh, so what we're doing for the next four Sundays... One of the ways that we're going to celebrate Advent is we're taking a break from our uh, Genesis sermon series. And, and I'm going to be preaching four sermons leading up to Christmas Day that are going to correlate with the Advent devotional that we have. So each week a theme is covered. And historically the church has, has, has divided Advent into these four themes. And they are hope and love and joy and peace. And so what I'm going to be preaching on each week is actually from the text that's in that Advent devotional. If you want to work through it as a family, I'm going to be preaching through that text and I'm going to hit each of those themes. Hope, love, joy and peace. Because here's what's happening in the Advent of Christ. We have the Advent of hope and love and joy and peace. So when Jesus arrives what also arrives is reason for hope. What also arrives is love and is joy and is peace. Let me say that negatively. So without the advent of Christ, if, if Jesus doesn't come, 
without the advent of Christ, then we don't have hope. If Christ doesn't come, we don't have love. We don't have joy. We don't have peace. Apart from Christ, apart from Christ, the world is hopeless. It's loveless. It's joyless. And it's without peace. Now that can sound like hyperbole, right? An exaggeration. Come on. Really? Isn't that a bit dramatic? The world is hopeless and and loveless and joyless and, and without peace apart from Jesus. Well, I don't know. People would say, I don't know Jesus. I'm not a Christian. I don't I don't go to church. I don't worship God. But I know I know what hope is. I know what joy is. I know what love is. Right? I mean, how dare you tell me? Right? It can come across offensive when we say something as emphatic as that. How dare you tell me that apart from your Christ, that I have no hope, or that I don't know what love is, or joy, or or peace. So most likely what's happening when that sort of uh, disagreement erupts, most likely we're talking about very different things. And what you mean by hope is not what I mean by hope. And what you mean by love is not what I mean by love. What you mean by joy or being happy is not what I mean by joy or being happy. And when you talk about peace, that's that's not what I mean when I'm talking about peace. Now, I know some of you just, you don't have hope. And some of your friends, some of your family, you know people, and they don't have hope. They wouldn't presume to say that they do. They would say they don't know what love is, they don't have joy, and they don't have peace. And we need to hear what Christ has to do with that. And there are some of you this morning, I know, who you do feel hopeless. Then you do feel unloved. And you don't, you don't think that you know what it means to have real joy. And, and, and there is no peace in your life or in your soul. And you're aware of this and, and you know this. And, and there's good news. There's good news. But for those who would say, I don't think there's that much riding on this Jesus thing. And I don't need him for hope. And I don't need him for love. And I don't need him for joy. And I don't need him for peace. What I would like to do over the next several weeks as we're celebrating Advent is to really talk about what hope is and what love is and what joy is and what peace is and how Christ really is the only means to those. The only, the only means. There are imposters. There are imposters that our great enemy would like us to find comfort in and to rest in that are a little bit like hope. That's a little bit like love. It's a little bit of joy. It's a little bit of peace. And so what happens is as people were longing for these things, I mean, nobody says, I don't want hope and I don't want love. 
and I don't want joy, and I don't want peace. No one talks like that, and no one thinks like that. And if you do think like that, it's only because that is a means to you actually having joy. (laughs) And that's what makes you happy, and that's what satisfies you to be the Scrooge, right? And to say that I don't want those things, I don't need those things. We all long for it. God built you to want hope and, and love and, and joy and peace. And you're, you're looking for it and you're seeking it and you're trying to find it. But what happens is, is our enemy is he has created imposters. And so what happens is we can get a little bit of hope, a little bit of joy, a little, and we stop looking. We stop and think, okay, I found it. I'm content. I'm satisfied. When you're not even close, you're not even close. It's counterfeit. It's counterfeit. So I hope that we can make the distinction between what the world offers and what Christ offers, that we can see the the counterfeit nature of worldly hope and love and and joy and peace and and come to understand that the fullness of them is only in Christ. It's only in Christ. So today, today we'll talk about hope. So let me pray and then we'll look at hope. And we'll look at Luke chapter 1. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us hope. God, thank you for wrapping us up in something that can sustain us and enable us and empower us and to keep us putting one foot in front of the other sometimes. Thank you for giving us hope. God, if there are people here today who have a little bit of hope, I pray that after hearing your word and having your spirit work in them, that they would have a lot of hope. That they would have something for their soul to anchor into. And it would not pull, it wouldn't give way, but it would it would really hold forever. Pray for all of us today that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we may become more grateful than maybe we are right now, more grateful as we understand on a deeper level the hope that we have in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll get to Luke chapter 1 in just a bit. If you have your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 1. But if we're going to talk about hope, I'd like us to get on the same page and, and make sure that we're working from the same definition because there's a lot of connotations out there when we hear the word hope. And so when I think of hope, I'm thinking at the very very least a sort of uh, sustaining desire or emotion in the heart regarding the future. Okay, so it's about, it has to do with the future and thinking about things that haven't happened yet and days that haven't happened yet and hours that haven't passed yet and events that haven't happened yet. So in regards to looking in the future and hope is this sort of um, sustaining emotion or desire in the heart. Okay, So it is a condition in the heart. It is an emotion. It is a feeling in your heart. Hope is in regards to the future that sustains you. Right? It helps you. It, it keeps you uh, steady. It putting one foot in front of the other. This is what, this is what hope is. At the very least. 
Biblically, let me read a couple verses from Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11, which are great verses to help us understand what hope is, as well as Hebrews 6, 19. Let's get a hold of what we're talking about in regards to hope so that we can see how Jesus is our hope. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, says this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Which is a wild verse. I'm reading that from the New King James Version. If you have the ESV, which I normally use, it says it a bit differently. But my understanding is this is even uh, more accurate and says it more plainly in our English language. When it talks about faith here and it talks about hope, it doesn't talk about it in this sort of uh, unknown, uncertain, blind who knows what's going to happen, sort of faith or hope. And it doesn't talk like that. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So in the West, when we use the word hope, it's a little different than what we're talking about when the Bible talks about hope. In the West, typically in our culture, when we use the word hope, we're referring to a desire, an emotion in our heart regarding what we would like to see happen in the future, but are not sure will come to pass. All right, so it's a, I'm hope. It's a hoping for something. I hope. What kinds of things do we say? Uh, I I hope the 49ers beat the Rams today. I hope. I do hope that. I would like the 49ers. They play the Rams today, and I hope that they beat them. But I have no idea if they're going to beat them. So I'm not like wagering money on it or anything like that. But I. It's uncertain. The future is uncertain. Uh, I hope that in, in 20 years, I'm still preaching to this church. I'm hoping for something. But I don't, I don't know if that's what the future holds. I hope it is. Do you hear that? This desire, emotion regarding the future. But it's a future that is not certain. Okay, I, I hope I stay healthy. I hope... There's not painful trials ahead of me. I hope that it goes well for my family and for my friends. I hope, but this is all. I don't have a crystal ball and the future is uncertain. So this is typically when we use the word hope, that's how we're talking. Okay, desire, emotion in the heart regarding a future that is not certain. So it's kind of like a wishing, right? This is not what the Bible means when it talks about hope. We don't have a good English word for it. In the Bible, hope refers to a desire in our hearts, an emotion in our hearts regarding, here's the difference, a certain future. It's a certain future. So when Christians talk about having hope, it's not a wish. It's not, well, the future is uncertain, but I, I hope it will go this way. 
No, our hope is rooted in certain truths that we know to be certain regarding the future. And you only get that kind of hope if it is not hoping for, but hoping in someone who's in the future. Right? That's the only way you're going to have hope regarding the future and knowing that the future is certain is if that hope is coming from one who's already in the future. And we do not have people like that. Right? We don't. There's no time machines. No time travel. There's no going forward and seeing what happens and then coming back and living accordingly. But we do have some certainty regarding the future. At least those who know God and those who are faithful, which means they believe God. We have an an emotion and a desire in our hearts that sustains us through anything and everything. And it is regarding a future that is totally certain. It's not a hoping for something. It's a hoping in something. Hebrews 6.19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What did Hebrews say? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, Listen, your ability to have that kind of hope that we're talking about today. Your ability to have that kind of hope is based on whether or not you have faith in God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. No faith, no hope. You see that? Because faith is the substance of things hoped for. My hope is based on something God has assured me will happen. That's hope. And because of the one who's telling us through his word that this will happen, being God who is over all and in all and through all and knows the future and writes the future, it's trustworthy. And so by faith, We believe Him and trust Him, and that gives us hope. So the substance of my hope is faith. That's what Hebrews 11 says. But let me replace faith with an explanation. The substance of my hope is my trust and confidence in the One making the promise. If you have faith, you will have hope. If you do not have faith, you will not have hope. Faith is, or hope is, faith looking forward. That's all hope is. Hope is faith looking forward. So we talk about living by faith. All right, I'm going to make it today living by faith. What does that mean? I'm trusting God. What about tomorrow? What about a year from now? What about two years from now? Now we're talking about hope, right? When I think about the future, I have hope. And what is your hope resting in? Faith. I trust God. I believe God. My hope is in God. But here's what we're going to find as we read. Your hope has no basis if Jesus doesn't come. 
There's nothing good about the future to believe if Jesus doesn't come. It's just all rotten. It's not good. It's not uphill. It's downhill. No upgrade. Downgrade. Forever. If Jesus doesn't come. Let's let's read Luke chapter one. Okay, verses twenty six. Luke chapter one, verse twenty six through thirty eight. Let me read through it quickly and then let's understand what Luke is doing. And then let's go through it a verse at a time and see the hope. Okay. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now this is an amazing account. This is an amazing account. Many of us, I suspect, are immune to the Christian story. We're, we're immune to the, the impact of this account of the birth of Jesus Christ. It's like we've been inoculated to it. We've heard it so much that we're not, we're not affected by it the way we would be if we were reading it for the first time. We're not influenced by it the way we would be if we were reading it for the first time. I mean, especially those of you who've grown up in the church. You're like, here we go again. La, la, you read the Christmas story and all you just hear, wah, 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 wah. I know, I've seen it, I can picture the felt board now. There they are, going across the desert, purple Mary and orange Joseph. I know what, I know how this goes, I know how this ends. Yeah, 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 virgin birth, so amazing, here we go. Where's my gift? Right, and so we've just been like vaccinated with by Santa Claus and gift giving and happy holidays and just the Christmas thing over and over and over again to where it doesn't affect us the way it once did. So my hope is that is one of the reasons we, we're going to take our time. We're going to go week by week. Is that we we really see what's happening here that, that the, with the advent of Christ is really the advent of the arrival of Christ is the arrival of hope and of love and of joy and of peace. That's what's breaking into the world 2000 years ago. Not just a baby, but no hope was breaking into the world and love and joy and, and peace. So here's what Luke is doing. And why is Luke giving these details? Why is he telling the story? The reason is because if you have good news, you're supposed to tell people. Right, if you have good news, you are obligated to tell people. In other words, if you have information that is noteworthy and it's important for the public to know or for the masses to know, you have an obligation to tell them. Now, that's not all the information in your life. We have this confused on Facebook today, right? There's a difference between what is actually news and people need to know and what they don't need to know. You, if you read a good book, you don't have to tell people. You can tell people. 
You can broadcast that if you eat a good sandwich. You don't have to tell people. You're not obligated to. You can. You can tell people, I just had a really good sandwich. But you are free to tell them or not to tell them. But if you have good news, it's different. You're obligated. If you have bad news, right, you're obligated. There's an obligation because it's what? It's news. That's what we mean by news. It's noteworthy information that more people than just you need to know about. So it needs to be published. It needs to be broadcasted. That's what Luke is doing. But here's the thing, right? Luke is not just giving good news. He is actually giving the good news. I mean, there's a word just for this good news, and it's the gospel. The Greek word was evangelion. It means the good news. It means that if you have this news, there's a responsibility to, to herald it, to evangelize. There's a, there's a responsibility, an obligation to, to declare this to everyone because this is news that, that people need to know. So who's the audience for the gospel? Everyone. Who's the when you're figuring out, okay, who's the gospel supposed to go to? You're Luke. I've got this news. Who's it supposed to, who's my demographic? I need some research done. No, it's everyone. It's everyone. Doesn't matter how old. Doesn't matter what language they speak. It doesn't matter what city they live in. It doesn't matter what culture they're a part of. Everyone, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news. Now it's the good news that applies to everyone because, and this is the first thing we need to grasp, is because everyone's in trouble. Amen. Everyone is in, is in big, big trouble. Every one of us. And the gospel is a hopeful message that breaks into a hopeless world. A hopeless world. It is the message of certain hope into a hopeless world. Not a hurting world, not a sick world, not a difficult world, but an absolutely hopeless world. There are things you can be certain of in this world. And apart from God, hopelessness is one of them. Benjamin Franklin had the famous quote, right? There are two things you can be certain of. Death and taxes. It was after the Constitution was written. He said, it's a pretty good document. It looks permanent to me. Um, I think it's going to go really well. But he said, but there's only two things that are certain. Death and taxes. It's true. But it's not true enough. It doesn't go far enough. I think when Benjamin Franklin said, you can be sure of death and taxes, he's talking about physical death. In other words, you can't escape physical death. There's a bigger problem than physical death. I mean, that may worry some of you. I don't want to die. What do you mean by that? I don't want my body to die. Do you know your soul can die? This is the trouble that humanity is in. The soul can die. The soul doesn't die like the body dies. The soul dies and it keeps living. The soul, when it dies, what that means is it lives on eternally, alienated from God. That is soul death. 
And it is the death of a sinner. And we're all sinners. This is the bad news. This is why Luke is writing this to everyone. Luke's not saying, hey, all of you who don't have it all together. Hey, all of you who need a crutch. Hey, all of you whose gods aren't cutting it. No, I mean, he's writing to everyone and anyone because all of us share this condition that we're in a state of sin and that is that we have turned from God and we have gone our own way. Like sheep, we have gone astray and we're living in God's world and in God's universe, living in the universe of the one who has created us and made us and loved us and sustained us and we are in outright rebellion against Him. That is not going to go well. This is not going to go well. And what happens is when you die and your body dies, your soul gets exactly what your soul pursued all of your life. You pursued alienation from God and you get alienation from God. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to ignore your word. I'm going to be indifferent to you. Not going to worship you. Going to worship myself. Ultimately, I'm going to sin. I'm going to do whatever pleases me. That is moving away from God, not to Him. That's living a life alienated from God, not reconciled to God. And when you die, it will not go any different. It will just be magnified. And this is the world and the condition that Luke is writing into. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, Jesus said. Wow. Remember what he said next? He said, you guys are worried about people who can come and put a bullet in your head? He says, don't worry about those guys. Don't be afraid of them. Rather, Jesus said this, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We have to feel the weight of this if the good news is going to be good news. This is an evil world, friends, and you're not just victims. You are victims, but you're also perpetrators. There is not just wickedness without, there is wickedness within. I know you've been sinned against, and you've been sinned against some of you grievously, and I'm so sorry for that. But you've been on the other side of that as well. We're blemished. We're full of spot and stain. We all, each one has gone his own way. We are sinful. We've turned our backs on the king. We are deserving of God's justice and wrath. And we will receive the alienation from God that we have pursued. Now that, friends, is the definition of hopelessness. That's hopeless. And that is all there is if there's no good news. If Jesus isn't born, that's all there is. You see why Christmas is a big deal? Because apart from Christmas, there's no hope. Jesus wasn't born on the cross. He was born in a manger. This is the greatest story ever being told. And this story has a beginning. And we're reading the beginning of this story. The very beginning of the rescuer's life. 
That's what we have here in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Those are the lenses that we need to look through as this longing people who need to be rescued, who need to be saved ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. And what did God come down and do right after the fall of Adam and Eve? He started making promises that His people didn't deserve. started making promises that He would save them. How would He save them? Well, how else? Through a Savior. He would rescue them. How else? Through a rescuer. He was going to send someone on a rescue mission. And you read your Old Testament, you read for millenniums, God's people just waiting and waiting and waiting and longing and longing and longing. When will we be rescued? Promises made, but not kept yet. Waiting, 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 waiting for the substance of their hope. And you know what you have here? God coming down and saying, nine months more. For the first time, timetable. When's He going to come? When's He going to come? When's the rescuer going to come? I don't know how much longer we can do this. I don't know if we can hold out. When will we be saved? When will we be rescued? When will our sin be dealt with? When will this King come? When will this Savior come? And do you know what Mary is told right now? Nine more months. Nine more months. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. In the sixth month, it tells us, that is, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. If we would read the first part of chapter one, that's what we would find out. Elizabeth is a relative to Mary. And Elizabeth's been pregnant for about six months. Another miraculous uh, conception because she's, she's old like Sarah, Abraham's wife. And so she's in the sixth month of her pregnancy. And then here, God sends an angel Gabriel to visit an insignificant woman in an insignificant town. Okay, Mary is, is not a significant woman. And this is not a significant town. Okay, Nazareth. Nazareth was the kind of town where people 50 miles away didn't know it existed. You had to tell them, like, a landmark that it was near. This isn't New York City. This isn't San Francisco. You know, this is Pawnee. Okay, this is a, nobody knows where this place is, but it's about, you know, 50 miles west of New York City. And now, oh, okay, now I understand where you're talking. That's Nazareth. No one knows where Nazareth is. This, This isn't what you expect. This isn't what you expect. The king is going to come like this. The savior is going to come like this. Mary's probably 14, 15 years old. She's a young woman. And Luke wants us to know two things at this point about mom and earthly dad. One is that mom's a virgin. It's really important. It's really important that we know that mom's a virgin. One of the reasons that's important is because the prophet Isaiah, when he talked about the rescuer coming, he said, the virgin will be with child. So that's significant. So he wants us to know, okay, Mary is a virgin. She has not, she's betrothed, she's engaged to her husband-to-be, but they have not slept together. Okay, she has remained pure. They've remained pure in their relationship. They have no plans, no intentions of sleeping together until their wedding night. Okay, how is this going to be possible? She's going to ask that question. So he tells us that Mary was a virgin as well that Joseph, okay, his earthly father, 
He was from the house of David. And that's significant too because 2 Samuel 7 tells us God told David that one day a king greater than you whose kingdom is going to last forever is going to come from your family. Okay, so Mary and Joseph meet some interesting qualifications that have to do with the prophecy and the promise of the king who was to come. Verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Remember this? Everyone is always scared when angels come to visit them. People say things today like, oh, I wish I could see an angel. You do not wish you could see an angel. You would, it would not be cool. It would not be cool. You would not get out your phone and post it on YouTube. You would be terrified. You would be absolutely terrified because you're getting just a little bit more of the glory of God that you can handle and your body would, would have a problem with that. So this is Mary. She's afraid. If you look at the, he doesn't say anything threatening. It's not like he says, you know, I'm here. You put your hands up. He says, greetings. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. That sounds pretty friendly. But still, she's like, what does he mean? Like, with me how? Like, with a lightning bolt? What, how's this going to go? So he has to reassure her again. Verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And we've got to be careful not to twist the story here. We've got to keep our theology straight when we're reading the story. Because we don't want to read this and say, ah, he found a good girl. He found a good girl. He needed to send the Messiah's got to come to a good girl. And so he found a sinless one. It was hard, but he finally found the only 14-year-old on the planet. Here she is. She's never sinned. This is merited favor, is what some would say. It's merited favor. This favor she has from God, it's deserved favor. God chooses her because of something good in her. And that's not true. This is a Genesis 6-8 kind of favor. Noah found favor in the sight of God. Noah found favor in the sight of God. Why? Why? Because Noah was this great guy and God looked up and down and finally found one. No, because God favored Noah and God gave grace to Noah and enabled Noah to have faith. And to love God. This is always how God works, right? God never, and it's so, I'm so glad, God never chooses anybody, God never favors anyone based on their qualifications. That's not who you have sitting in the room right now. (laughs) If I could speak for you. (laughs) I could speak for myself. That's not who you have sitting in the room right now. Let the redeemed say so. It's not let the qualified, it's not, you're looking at it, here you go. We're the good guys. Those are all the bad people out there, but with some good tracks, maybe we can win them over. We're the good guys in here, and they're the bad guys. It's all bad guys and one good God. That's the ratio. That's the ratio. And so uh, God did not choose Mary because of something special in Mary. God chose Mary because of something special in God. It's a good God. He's a loving God. He's a gracious God. This is the kind of grace, the same word is used in Ephesians 1.6. He's telling her that you're about to get a free bestowal of God's grace. Not something you've earned, not something you're entitled to, not something you deserve, just like us. We're not entitled to anything from God. 
Now, I wouldn't say we don't deserve anything from God. We do deserve some things from God, but it's not what we've received. We've received what we do not deserve, his love and affection. He clarifies this with his people, Israel. Why did you choose us, God? The only nation is pretty cool. You didn't choose any other nation. You chose us. We like this. Why did you do it? You remember his answer? Well, it sure wasn't because of you. He's not a flatterer. There's nothing good in you. It's something good in me. Nothing great in you, but something great in me. I didn't choose you because you're valuable, but in choosing you, I've made you valuable. That's the good news. So that's what he's doing here. Mary found favor with God. And so, and so here's what this angel is going to tell her. Okay, the angels, angels don't come to hang out. They, they, they come to give messages. Okay, they come to bring words and news. So here is the news. Five, five things. She's going to have a baby. Okay? She's going to have a baby. You think that's good news. That is not good news if you're Mary. She's a 14-year-old unmarried woman. That's not good news. Yay. She's not trying to have a child yet. This is, a, this is alarming. But there's going to be some very great news in the midst of this. What does he tell her about this child? And behold, there's, there's five things here. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Number one, five things Gabriel says about Mary's child. The first is his name will be Jesus. God's given the name. Names are really important in your Bible. Names have meaning. We've seen that. Jacob and Rachel and Sarah and Abraham and Leah. When names have meaning. And in this case, you're going to have a child and um, you know, make sure you pick a good name. Make sure you pick a good name. Get a couple of those books with a thousand names in them. Go through them. Maybe get one with the First letter of the name matches the first letter of your last name. That sounds pretty cool. Maybe pull your church, put on Facebook something, have people vote on your baby's name. Make sure you think of all the possible nicknames so you don't pick a real dud of a name. It doesn't say that. God says God's naming this child. And what is the name? Jesus. Which is the Greek name for the he it's the same thing as the Hebrew name, Joshua which is a combination of two Hebrew words, Yehovah and Yasha, the Lord saves. Because you're going to have a child. Okay, what should I name this child? Well, God wants you to name this child Savior. Rescuer. Deliverer. That's His name. You shall name Him Jesus. He, verse 32, He will be great. What does great even mean in our vocabulary, right? Everything's great. Everything's, everything's great and everything's awesome. Everything. Well, this means something when it says that this child you're going to have will be great. We get a look in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. 
This is about Jesus. This is how great he is. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then it talks about this son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is the definition of great. Nothing is great if that is great. Nothing is great if that is great. Here's this child that's going to be born to Mary. He's going to be the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. He is over everything. Through whom also he created the world. It means the created world, created universe, everything that we see, everything that we don't see, everything that we know, everything that we will know, it means that through Jesus, all of that was created. This child is great. And then it says that he, this child who is going to be in the womb of Mary, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I don't even know what that means. I don't know what that means. But that sounds great. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. It means that we've got all different understandings, partial understandings of what holds this universe together. But ultimately, what holds the universe together is Jesus. He holds the universe together. It's in his hand. And without him, it all falls apart. Every molecule. This is not an overstatement when he says about her child, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. That's the third thing. He will be called the son of the most high. So he's telling Mary. The child that you're going to have is the son of God. He's the Son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So there it is. Joseph, his earthly father, descendant of David. Jesus will come in his line. But he will be a second. Samuel 7 talks about a forever king. And verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So this child, well, what are those words that we see? Throne, reign, kingdom. So the fifth thing that he tells Mary is that this child will be a king. You're to name him Jesus. You're to name him rescuer. He will be great. He is the Son of God. He will sit on David's throne and His kingdom will never, ever end. He's the only good king. He's the only good king. We don't want a king in America, do we? We don't want a king. We want democracy. Why do we want democracy? Well, I'll tell you why I want democracy. Because I don't want a king because there's no good kings. 
Do you want one person to have absolute rule and authority over you? I don't think so. Jesus? Okay. He's the king. The only good king. The only right king. The only perfect king. And his kingdom will last forever. Verse 34, Mary asks a very good question. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? That's a really good question. How is this possible? Now she's believing. Okay, it's going to happen. But there's a problem here. You've got an obstacle. I've never been with a man. So how am I going to have a child? And, and listen to this answer. And, and this answer is... But we can understand what the words are saying, but we can't understand what actually happens here. It's like the Trinity. We can understand what the Bible says about the Trinity, but you can't understand the Trinity. Right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, which one's God? Well, they're all God. So there's three of them. No, there's one. Well, so who's got no equal in power, equal in majesty, equal in greatness? The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Son and the Father. Oh, so the Spirit's inferior. No, they're all equal. <laughs> right? I mean, this is what the Bible teaches. You can understand what the Bible teaches, but you cannot understand the Trinity. You cannot understand what we're about to read right here. But we can understand what the Bible says about it. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Says you're you're not, you're not going to be with a man in order to have this child. God Himself, the Holy Spirit, is going to put you under His wing. And He is going to miraculously conceive in your womb a child. Who will be, and we'll get into this in weeks to come, who will be fully man. He will be your son, Mary. But He will be fully God. Because he will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Totally God. Totally man. 100% God. 100% man. Miraculous. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. If you've paid attention in reading your Bible, that is said over and over and over again. People keep forgetting it. And God keeps telling them, nothing is impossible for God. I don't see how this can work out. I don't see how this could possibly go well. I don't see how this could be true. I don't see how this... Nothing is impossible for God. 
Nothing is impossible for God. Sarah's 90 years old. No child. Not impossible for God. God told her, Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? The is a rhetorical question, he asked her. No. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. We move on to Job, chapter 42, verse 2. And Job says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The prophet Jeremiah said in 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Except my circumstance. Except this trial that I'm in. No, nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. All things are possible for Him. What that means is that whatever He promises to do, He will do. Because He won't be stopped by His inability to do it. Because He's not unable. Nothing is too hard for Him. God can do everything. Therefore, His promises made are always promises kept. Therefore, hope in anything other than God is really not hope. It's counterfeit hope. It's hopelessness. But hope in God is real hope. It's real sustaining desire and emotion in our heart regarding the future. I can go through any furnace of affliction. I can get through this trial. I can resist this temptation. Right? I can handle this cancer. I can go through this tragedy. I can be in the middle of this storm. I can be bent even further and further. Because my faith and trust is in God. And I have promises to hold on to. And nothing is impossible for Him. And His promises made are always promises kept. And here Mary is reminded of that. And this is why the Christian has hope. Because of Jesus. William Grinnell was a Puritan. He wrote prolifically about hope. And he described hope as the blanket for the believer. Hope, the sustaining desire, emotion of the heart regarding the future. Uh, right? It is like this blanket the, the believer wraps around himself. Okay, I can get through this. I can do this. I can handle this. I can get through tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Even if these clouds don't lift because of this blanket. And this blanket is hope. He said the believer wears this blanket into the grave. It's hope. Though he slay me, I will hope. No matter what, always, forever, sustaining hope. Hope that we don't have if we don't have Christ. Let me close with an actual quote from William Grinnell regarding hope. 
he says this, hope fills the afflicted soul with such inward joy and consolation that it can laugh while tears are in the eye. Sigh and sing all in a breath. It is called in Hebrews 3, 6, the rejoicing of hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for being the substance of our hope. Thank you for giving us faith. For giving us eyes to see you and your truth, your work, and your gospel. God, I pray that if we cry, that laughter would not be far behind. If we sigh, that singing would not be far behind. That we would be your people who are always sorrowful, always rejoicing. And that we would have rejoicing because of the hope that we have, which is an anchor for our soul. And that our hope would be forever tied into the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as He dealt with sin. So God, make us mindful this morning. Make us hopeful this morning. That we would even not squander the rest of our time together as your family and worship, but that we would be thinking of you and looking to you, singing to you, thanking you with hearts of gratitude overflowing for all the good you've done in us and to us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.